Hi folks, welcome to this episode of Epochs, where I'm joined by Bo, and we are going to be discussing one of my favourite historical figures. Uh, just a mildly uncontroversial English king that you may or may not have seen in a famous Hollywood movie, where he was crushing the Scots uh, as they deserved. Edward Longchanks. <laughs> uh, one of my favourite reaction gifts on Twitter. <laughs> no, he's a great... He's a great king. He's one of the absolute highlights. Yeah. Anyone that knows about the history of the English monarchy, they're going to pick out Longshanks. Mm. You know, you can't avoid, if you're a fan of it, loving yeah. Richard, yeah. loving Longshanks, loving Henry V. Henry the, uh, Ed, Edward III is a great yeah. one, yeah. truly great one as well. There's a few standout ones, and Edward I, Longshanks, is one of them. First thing to say is... Um, why is he Edward the First when there's been all sorts of Edwards before him? But there you go. That is a good question. Yeah. I've never really thought of that now that you mention it. How is an Edward the Confessor Edward the First? Yeah. Anyway. Well, I guess it's the first Norman, though. Right? Well, yeah, it's. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what it must be, right? Yeah, Plantagenet. Anyway, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, one thing to say is he was named after the Confessor, Edward right. the. Th uh, sorry, his father, Henry the Third, idolised Edward the Confessor. Right. And Edward is a good, solid Anglo name. Uh, well, I was going to say that. What we're seeing here is the Anglicisation of the Norman monarchy, right? Yeah, a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. Mm. I was reading, um, I've got a quote or two from Mark Morris, a modern historian. He said, at the time, when Edward was born and named, Edward was a very unpopular name. Yeah, I bet. Um, but Henry went with it anyway because, as I say, he idolised the confessor. And you are right, it's a good, solid Anglo-Saxon name, that. Love it. By that point, in the sort of mid to late 13th century, already the confessor is like this almost mystical figure. Yeah, the lawgiver. Uh, yeah, yeah. So a couple of things say uh, straight off the bat, um, something about the historiography. Um, Matthew Paris was alive at the time and witnessed all sorts of things and wrote about it. And there's a lot of his writings remain. I mean, loads. Yeah. Like seven volumes worth of accounts. So Matthew... <clears throat> I mean, Matthew Paris is sort of the go-to person for this period in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. um, another thing to say is that there's kind of an explosion of material. Well, I've mentioned before, um, if you go back to the age of, say, William the Conqueror, there's very, very, very little. Like scraps, really. And even for his sons, mm. it's kind of, well, it's very scrappy. At the time of... Henry III, or certainly by the time of Longshanks, and we'll get into the reasons why, there's so much material that you can't read it all. Loads and loads and loads of it has never been right. translated. At Kew, at the archives in Kew in West London, there's thousands, I think tens of thousands of rolls that uh, to this day no one's really gone through. It would take more than a lifetime. Maybe the AI can do it. We oh, get well, AI was, to do it. I was literally going to say, why not just get the AI, scan it, get the AI to tell us what happened? A lot of it is just extremely boring uh, sort of receipts, in a sense, <laughs> yeah. receipts of things. Yeah. A lot of it is financial stuff. Yeah. So, for example, even though I've just said that, we've got loads and loads of information. For example, we haven't got an eyewitness account of his coronation. Hmm. So there'll be pockets. We've got, in yeah, some yeah. sense, a vast amount of information, and in other senses still hmm. a complete dearth of right. information. So. It's one of those things you can only really patch together an idea of things. But we're really, really coming out of the quote-unquote dark ages. We're, sort of, we're coming into really 
the full light of history. Because yeah. there's other people that wrote letters that have survived. Right. All sorts of people. Um, so, yeah, we're starting to really emerge from the darkness. Well, I mean, it, just a quick aside. It, I find this not surprising because from this point onwards, it's essentially an unbroken continuity of English civilization. Uh, you know, like, you know, wherever the records are kept hasn't been sacked. You know, nothing's been burned down. So why wouldn't it be? You know, which is why we still got four copies of the original Magna Carta knocking around, you know, things yeah. like this. Like, yeah, well, why wouldn't there be? You know, it, there were no Vikings burning it down. You know, we, we somehow managed to maintain the integrity of the civilization for all that time, which is why, you know, looking at what the Conservative government's doing now is... Anyway, mm. aside, uh, yeah, so, yeah, good. Yeah, no Viking host yeah. or sort of French army ever burnt down Q. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ever. So, yeah, right. I mean, uh, maybe Mr Hitler could have tried to drop bombs on it, but he never did. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, there has been a lot written because he's so famous and because the reign is so sort of pivotal and glorious in all sorts of ways. Edward I has been written about loads. I mean, there's hundreds of books of course. been written about him um, over the centuries. But any strong character ends up this way. Right. You know, right, and strong in either direction, positive or negative. Mm. You know, down, down there's a voluminous wealth of material on John mm. uh, mm. because he's such a horrible character. But mm. like, it's, it's the sort of Henry III's who nobody knows about mm. because he was a middling character who's not particularly interesting to talk about. Mm. Yeah. Mm. A couple of standout works are Morris Powick and Michael Prestwich that a lot of writers, modern writers, um, use. In academia, quite often you get sort of uh, people consider a gold standard mm. and that people uh, then just use. Yeah. But I'll be quoting from Churchill again and Oman and Mark Morris. Um, so, yeah, if we get into it. Okay. I won't deal with the very, very early part and the childhood of Longshanks' life because we talked a fair bit about it yeah. in the last one. Um, so what I wanted to pick up is just to mention again that he basically defeated Simon de Montfort yeah. and the, the, Bar the Baron's Rebellion, um, ultimately winging at the, at the Battle of Evesham. And this is where he's quite a young man still in his mm. early 20s, wasn't it? Mm. So that's a trial by fire, because I tell you what, if I was in my, when I was in my early 20s, I don't think I was ready to defeat Simon de Montfort. Mm. Right. Yeah, and his daring escape from imprisonment, yeah. raising a, an army under his own banner, in his own name, yeah. and uh, taking it to yeah. the, the sort of the usurper yeah. and winning. And, and that's again, the key thing, winning. And just a quick thing, Simon de Montfort was no pushover, veteran warrior from an aristocratic family who, of, of veteran warriors. Mm -hmm. Like If anyone had the institutional knowledge and battlefield experience, it was Simon de Montfort. So the fact that um, Longshanks could just raise an army and crush him, bloody hell. Yeah. It shows that he's, you know, obviously no shrinking violent, no. Um, that he's got a, a strength of character, strength of will, um, which is sort of cast iron, mm. basically. But also he seems to have had the eye. Mm. You know, just had the eye. Even in his early 20s, he knows how to do these things. And prepared to gamble, we talked about that, didn't we? Is that uh, there's one thing to um, have a good sense of politics and a good sense of military tactics and strategy, but it's kind of one extra thing you need is to be prepared to gamble it all. Mm -hmm. 
um, often multiple times during yeah. your career. Um, that's what a lot of uh, people that fall by the wayside in terms of how history remembers them. Yeah. Is that they just weren't prepared to gamble everything. Yeah. Uh, but Longshanks is. So, um, <clears throat> quick quote here to begin with from Churchill, who wrote, Few princes have received so thorough an education in the art of rulership as Edward I, when at the age of 33, his father's death brought him to the crown. He was an experienced leader and a skillful general. He had carried his father on his shoulders. He had grappled with Simon de Montfort, and while sharing many of his views, Simon's views, he destroyed him. He had learned the art of war by tasting defeat, because even though he won ultimately mm. at Evesham, he had lost earlier battles and been imprisoned and things. Yeah. Um, when at any time in the closing years of King Henry III's reign, he could have taken control. He had preferred a filial and constitutional patience, all the more remarkable when his own love of order and reform is contrasted with his father's indolence and incapacity and the general misgovernment of the realm." End quote. So one of the things, generally speaking, that typifies the end of Henry III's rule is sort of a general lawlessness in the country. Mm. Uh, the, the roads weren't safe. Uh, the outlaws, out the outlawry in the forests and things are sort of uh, run wild a bit. The king is failing in his duty to provide order and justice. Yes. And we'll get into it in a moment. But one of the things that, uh, one of the big things that Edward I did was turn all that around. Mm. Um, He's the Bacali of uh, 13th, 14th yeah. century England. Yeah. <laughs> but then, so it's interesting that he didn't, do that earlier, yeah. before he was the actual sovereign. Yeah. One thing I need to correct myself on is last time I mentioned him, mentioned, talked of him in terms of the Prince of Wales. That actually starts with his son, oh, who becomes right, Edward okay. II, after his conquests of Wales, which we're going to get into at the end of this episode. Yeah. Um, so actually it's wrong to have called Longshanks the Prince of Wales, who's merely just the heir to the throne, but right. uh, we'll get into all that. Um, Another quick line here from Churchill, you wrote, um, this is just a general description of him, because again, we start to have descriptions of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the ancient world, or the, the Dark Ages, and the pre-medieval world, uh, we often don't have it, often. Yeah. But for Longshanks, Churchill said, quote, he was of elegant build and lofty stature, a head and shoulders above the height of the ordinary man. His hair, always abundant, changed from yellow in childhood to black in manhood and snow white in age and marked the measure of progress of his life. His proud brow and regular features were marred only by the drooping left eyelid which had, which had been characteristic of his father. If he stammered, he was also eloquent. There is much talk of his limbs, his sinewy, sinewy muscular arms were those of a swordsman his long legs gave him a grip of the saddle and the nickname of Longshanks. The Dominican chronicler Nicus Trive, uh, by whom these traits are recorded, tells us that the king delighted in war and tournaments, and especially in hawking and hunting, uh, when he chased the stag and did not leave his quarry to the hounds, nor even to the hunting spear, he galloped at breakneck speed to cut the unhappy beast to the ground. So he liked personally likes to mm. hunt and kill things which isn't unusual but uh, he particularly liked it yeah um i do love the fact i do love just ancient descriptions of anything because there, there's a way that pre-modern language functions 
that gives you a much more rich view of the thing. Like uh, Anna Komnena's description of Beaumont springs to mind, where she just describes because they're very, very interested in characterizing virtues. And so you know, they oh well, he's got you know he's big, he's tall, he's got sinewy limbs, and you know, and Anna Komnena was like he's you know ruddy faced and handsome, and she's clearly a wow, you know. <laughs> Like, look at this giant Norman guy. I'm well <laughs> impressed. She was only 14. <laughs> Give her a break. <laughs> but, um, but some of the, the ancient descriptions are just far more engaging than our descriptions of people now. And it's, it's definitely something I feel that is a loss. You know, nobody describes in the way. But uh, I guess everyone's uh, jealous these days. I really love sort of physical, personal descriptions yeah. of people from history because it, it puts meat on the bones, if you like. Yeah. Um, yeah your imagination you've actually got something to hold on to yeah yeah something yeah visual like um the description of attila the hun is just great it's a little squat ugly step warrior mm. he looks like an evil dwarf it's like yeah i bet yeah <laughs> but anyway sorry and it's also great if you haven't got an actual literary description sometimes you'll have uh, a bust from the yeah. ancient world yeah. um again if you've got something that your imagination can hold on to yeah uh, you know, there's a lot of people from history who've just got, who've just got nothing really, no idea what they would have looked like or anything. But although I am mildly um, skeptical of the busts a lot of the time, <laughs> uh, because there are lots of busts that say Julius Caesar, and in some he looks like a square or Chad, and the others he looks like an administrator. <laughs> and I can't help but feel the administrator was probably more realistic. And like the the busts of Alexander, the early ones are him, and he looks really Chad. And then he seems to go into some sort of twink phase in his bust where he gets thinner and like more effete. I'm like, I don't think Alexander the Great was effete. Like, I'm more, more inclined to believe the earlier Chad busts of Alexander. With busts, you just have to be very careful if they're original or not. Like, so course. there's a, an original Alexander by Lysippus, I think. Yeah. Um, and then there'll be lots and lots of Roman copies and then Victorian copies of the Roman copy yeah, of yeah. the original Greek co copy. And, I think I know the original one you're thinking of because mm. he's got he's very thick mm. in that way. He's mm. very thick necked and thick faced. Mm. He's not actually beautiful, you know. He's he's ruggedly handsome, I guess, you know. But like, but then the later ones where he's very like probably Victorian ones actually, where you know, he's a lot more sort of Lord Byron, mm -hmm. you know. You know what I mean? Sort of. Sometimes anyway. in sort of the uh, the roller coaster of art history yeah. is that sometimes it was the norm to just go with an idolised version of something. So, for example, in sort of the second or third century, it would just be an idolised version of Antinous or something, mm. and they say that's Alexander. Yeah. Or something. It's like it's it's, yeah. it's nothing to do with the real image of Alexander. Yeah. Um, for example, or yeah, Victorian copies of Roman copies, and that's. Yeah. Yeah, so you, this you, is this is why I like Cromwell's. Yeah, just draw me as I am, warts and all. Yeah. And so I love it. It's like no, no, I want the dirt. You know, I want the roughness of history. You know, I want it to really sort of. I don't. I don't want an idealized version. I want to know what the people living through it actually got to see. That is one of the great things that the Italian Renaissance gave us. Mm. Is that um, you know, we don't want idealized um, profiles. Mm. We want what the person actually looked like mm. um and yeah that is what you get often so it's great that longshanks longshanks sort of has two two qualities that mm. are great one that he took the business of administration and government seriously and two that he was physically brave and strong um 
So another very super quick line from Churchill said, uh, he presents us with qualities which are a mixture of the administrative, administrative capacity of Henry II and the personal prowess and magnanimity of Coeur de Lyon. There's one line I was reading where during his coronation, when he finally gets back from crusade, I'll talk about that in a moment, yeah. finally gets back from crusade to have his coronation. And apparently in the streets, people are proclaiming, we have a new Richard. Yeah. Uh, why wouldn't you? Mm. You know, why you'd be thrilled. Mm. Who is his great uncle? Yeah, right. So you know, strong family resemblance. Yeah. So, uh, in the mind of Longshanks himself, he sort of actively wanted to emulate his great uncle, and um, sort of do better than his father. Yeah, which yeah, is very consciously. Yeah. I need to reverse all the things that my father failed to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, very consciously. Um, so. As we mentioned in the last one, I won't go into any real detail in it. Uh, after de Montfort is killed at Evesham, um, there is a couple of years where the de Montfort cause still carries on. Mm. Um, and uh, there's sort of a fairly delicate balancing act of how to deal with it. Um, there's sort of pockets of rebellion which hold out. Kenilworth is one of the big ones. Um, but eventually, one way or another, by hook or by crook, they're sort of uh, put down or quelled. And um, Edward wants to go on crusade, mm -hmm. uh, really wants to go on crusade, but crusades are fantastically expensive. Yes. And they just don't really have the money. Henry III, one of the things all about Henry III's reign is he constantly hasn't got enough money. Yeah. It takes him a whole lifetime to rebuild Westminster Abbey because he hasn't got enough money, really. Yeah. Um, so Edward, um, who is uh, a lot of the power, really, a lot of the policy is with him already. Because, um, like I say, he's in his he's in his thirties, late twenties, early thirties, or late twenties still, and his father is is weak and not really interested in truly governing. Um, so Edward um, sort of extorts the money in all sorts of ways um, <laughs> right, okay. from the Jewish population. Right, a, a fair bit we're told. Um, I'll deal with the 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 Jewish question next time because well, that's a whole theme. It's the expulsion of the Jews. Just yeah. spoiler alert for yeah. something that happened eight hundred years ago. Um, yeah, he, he doesn't seem to have been a fan. Yeah. Um, again, I'll deal with that as a whole theme next time. Um, but yeah, just to say here at this point, he sort of uh, essentially extorts lots of money out of them. Um, gets a, got a lot of money from the church, or tries to. Mm -hmm. Gets a lot of money from his own baronage. Um, from Parliament, tries to get to varying degrees of success, largely non-successfully, from Parliament. Um, so anyway, there's a whole story, a bit of a saga really, about how he raises enough money um, from some of members of his own family, Richard of Cornwall. Um, so just about scrapes together enough money to go on a crusade all the way to the Holy Land. Mm. The Eighth Crusade, it's called. But he's still it's only 250, 300 knights at most. Really? A few hundred men-at-arms yeah. to go with it. Very, very small scale. Yeah. Very small scale. Just hasn't got enough money to do a big one. Mm. Um, just to be clear, like you say, it's the Eighth Crusade. Mm. Uh, Richard went on the Third Crusade, mm. and Richard and Edward are directly related. It is within a couple of generations that huge amounts of treasure have been spent. I mean, I, I dread to think how impoverished Europe becomes because of the Crusades and, you know, how much it would have had otherwise. 
mm. had they not spent it all on Crusades. Mm. But, um, but yeah, so mm. just uh, how quickly the money disappeared, I think, is important to note. Yeah. And a lot of uh, important people, like, so his younger brother, Edmund, uh, takes the cross as well. As his wife, he's married already to Eleanor of Castile. Mm -hmm. She goes with him. Not completely unheard of. Eleanor of Aquitaine went with Louis. Um, It's sort of largely frowned on. But if you're extremely noble and you've got enough money, it's not, it's far from unheard of. Anyway, Eleanor of Castile does go with him. Um, And uh, a fair few French noblemen and knights go with him, and he's a bit late. The French contingents go early because he's, he has real trouble raising the money. He yeah. actually goes a few months late. Um, and they decide, they sail there. He sails straight to Acre. Well, actually goes to Cyprus, yeah. and then Acre. Um, and Acre is still in the hands of the Christians. There is still sort of, you know, ultramar. Um, but it's, it's small now. They still hold Tripoli. They've still got Acre. Obviously not Jerusalem. It's it's a much, much, much reduced mm-hmm. thing. And to sort of cut to the chase on that, to give it some context, within 20 years, they're completely pushed out. And it's only this Eighth Crusade, which even gives them that extra 20 years. It could have been any day that Ultramar was completely mm-hmm. ended. Because where Richard was there on the Third Crusade and his great antagonist was Saladin, the picture from the from the Muslim side of the ledger, has completely changed. They're now Mamelukes. Mm. The Mamelukes had been really fairly low resolution, but had essentially been the slaves of the Saladin era Muslim rulers, mm-hmm. like the Zangids. And they overthrew their sultan in Egypt, didn't they? Mm. Now it's the Mameluk Caliphate. Mm. And the Mamelukes survive for centuries and centuries and centuries. Well, it's onwards. Napoleon. Right, yeah, yeah. He knocks off the Mamluk right. Caliphate. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're, they're professional warriors, you know, and you'd expect them to do quite well. They're nothing to sniff at. No, I mean, they defeat the Mongols. Well, that's what I was going to say. Uh, Angelus. So, so, you know, yeah. it's, it's like they're nothing to sniff at at all. And, in fact, aren't they one of the reasons that the Ottomans have so many problems as well? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're nothing to sniff at. They're, you know, very competent professional force. And their leader at this point is Babers. Mm. He's sort of the main man. He's quite famous, if you know anything about these yeah. things. Babers oh, is a yeah. very, very competent general. Doesn't he end up... He's the one who ends up pushing the Franks into the sea as well. Mm. Yeah, mm. great general. Mm. So he's the sort of Saladin of this era, mm. if you like. Oh, he's I think he's the better leader. than Saladin. Right, yeah. You know, they, I, well, anyway. So one thing to mention is the, is the Mongols. Now, they are... In all sorts of ways, historical anomaly, uh, a historical anomaly. There's all sorts of rules of thumb for history, with mm-hmm. the odd exception here and there. Most of those rules just do not apply to the Mongols. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. This is how you siege a city. This is how you take a land. These yeah. are sort of the general rules and dynamics of power. And None of it really applies to the Mongols. They're yeah. the exception. So, um, so yeah, you know, um, with just... the exception of the British Empire... The Mongol Empire is the biggest empire there's ever there, there has ever been. It's the biggest contiguous land empire. Mm. Whereas mm. The, the British Empire, of course, was not contiguous because it began on an island. Um, but what, one thing that the that people, I think, ought to remember about the Mongols, whereas the medieval era is a brutal era from our standards, but the Mongols were brutal to the medieval era. Mm. So by mm. medieval standards, mm. the Mongols were horrific barbarians who did terrible, terrible things on a scale that you couldn't even imagine. Uh, 
and it with with zero remorse absolutely zero remorse and this is just i mean the, the muslims and the christians are a lot more civilized than the pagan mongols just it's that simple mm. like you mm. you know people might complain about islam and things like that you know now and i'm sure the muslims have plenty of complaints about christians and crusaders but all things considered i mean you like you know the third crusade was a gentleman's war you know <laughs> yeah. when compared to the mongol sack of baghdad for example or any other city of the hundreds of cities that they just leveled and the millions of people that they just killed because they found them an inconvenience mm. like it's genuinely mm. like again we'll have we'll do a big thing on it at some point i'm sure mm. but like the just the savagery of the mongols mm. was eye-opening to everyone at the time mm. yeah completely terrifying monstrous holds yeah. endless mm. holds um yeah 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 and the, yeah, like it's one thing having an endless hordes of of you know peasants or something who aren't really very terrifying, but these guys are all professional warriors. Not not even professional. Like the what being a warrior is their way of life. Mm. You know, on mm. horseback with bows, and so you are just not prepared for this kind of warfare either, which is another major problem the West has. Because one one of the things about the the West is infantry. We've always had great infantry. The East has always had great cavalry. Okay, well, cavalry and infantry can fight each other. That's perfectly normal. And there are ways of dealing with each one from each position. Horse archers are a different kettle of fish. And they are devastating, if used correctly. And the Mongols use them perfectly. Yeah, right. Born in the saddle. Yeah. Brilliant archers. Perfectly happy to do hit and run style tactics. Constantly using feigned retreats. Feigned retreats, endlessly, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And 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 not stupid either, which is one thing that you would think, okay, well, at least they're just dumb barbarians. No. Uh, they were very, very clever. Uh, and I mean, Subutai being, of course, the archetypal example of a, a clever Mongol general, but they were all pretty good because this Genghis Khan selected for merit, which was unusual, highly unusual. Yeah, not just feigned retreats, but feigned retreats in order to lure you into a carefully prepared trap. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. carefully prepared ambush site. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not idiots. The opposite, really. No, in fact, they're, they're, in, the fact in many ways, they're kind of geniuses or what they do. Yeah. I mean, the Mongol conquest of Russia, the Rus, uh, is brilliant because it, it essentially it was a, they, they went on like a 50-mile retreat and the, the, the Rus Russian princes charged after them but of course their line became all strung out and so the mongols being entirely mounted just wheeled around and just defeated in detail the entire russian army and it's like that's that's genuinely smart yeah so yeah just to get to the point the mongols were like some sort of nightmare that everyone had to deal with and no one managed to deal with properly until the mamluks got a kind of lucky victory over them angelute which we won't go into i suppose mm. detail mm. now but it's just just so you know well, yeah, no, so I want to say, so we're talking about the 1260s here, really. Um, so the Ilkhanate, one of the, the, the sort of Persian region Khanate of the Mongols, um, had been one of, had a, a rare defeat at Angelou, as you mentioned, at the hands of, of the Mamluks. Yeah. Um, so it, this, he's, the, the, the Khan there is sort of the great-grandson of Genghis Khan. Um, so, yeah. Yep. So that's the sort of period we're, we're talking about. Um, now, when Edward I lands at Acre with his 
250-odd knights and a few hundred men-at-arms. Uh, Babers is there, and his army's in the thousands, some say maybe the tens of thousands, mm. and it's sort of clear that there's no real way that Edward can just hack his way through to Jerusalem, because that was his aim still. He wants to... He wants to liberate the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Of course, and still, I'm sh- and I'm still. sure if you'd b- brought a few more men, you could have done it. You know, hmm. but you've done it with virtually nothing. And Babers is uh, is absolutely formidable. Yes, and with a big army. So, yeah. uh, so I mean, he's out there for sort of four years. Well, well, well no, it takes a year to get back. So he's he's out, he's in the Holy Land for uh, over two years. Hmm. Um, so in in the history books, quite often this bit's kind of skated over. It was kind of a yeah. the Eighth Crusade is sort of a nothing piece well, out. But no, at the time, if you were there, it was a whole it was a whole thing. Yeah, but they don't really sure. achieve anything of note, do they? Uh, ultimately, no. Well, other than um, keeping Tripoli and keeping Acre and breathing life into Ultramar for another twenty odd years, which isn't nothing. That's true. Um, but I suppose. In the grand scheme of things, it's a it's a blip. Yeah, um, and so, so I've got a I've got a controversial hot take. Okay, uh, if if Edward the First had had Richard's resources going on the Third Crusade, I think he would have done a lot better. Probably. Oh, yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know, like as much as I love Richard, he was far too cautious in the Third. Anyway, won't, won't really. Let's yeah, go. Edward the First was uh, yeah starved of resources really. Yeah. Um, so, well, he decides, he realises he hasn't really got enough men, so he tries to create a, a coalition, mm. if you like. So he tries to draw together everyone he can, sort of the, any knights he can get from Cyprus. His brother, his younger brother Edmund, turns up with a bunch of reinforcements. Uh, the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitaller, um, the, the Lusignons um, add some. Mm-hmm. And he even tries to make an alliance with the Mongols. Yeah. Because the Mongols, uh, well, well, he actually does. It's very sort yeah. of tentative and sort of very just sort of a paper thin, almost not much more than sort of a verbal contract. But the Mongols abide by it and they take, they retake Aleppo, which is not a million miles away. No, no, not at all. It's actually just into Syria. Um, yeah, Syria. Near, yeah, near, near, sorry? Yeah, modern Syria. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. In what's modern Syria, but yeah. like you know, a little bit east of Antioch, basically. It's not far. But um, what, one thing that's interesting about again the Mongols is they're very diplomatic, actually, and they are very good at divide and conquer. And this is the Mongols were very interested in having an alliance with the Christians, thinking, okay, well, this is a way of leveraging native resources or you know, existing resources uh, against the Saracens. They, they were they completely understood the power dynamics and so obviously went in to support the weaker party against the stronger in order to bolster their own positions. Again, one thing that really is annoying about the Mongols, they weren't idiots at all. Very clever. And that's what made them so goddamn dangerous. Mm, yeah. When they're in city-sacking mode, mm. there's no reasoning with them. No. But when they're in diplomatic mode, you can. They are. Very. And... and um, Eagerly as well on their part, they understand that this is a way of extending their own power, and so they're very conformable actually and very reasonable diplomats until you've really annoyed them and they've got a hundred thousand horse mounted hordes, mm. uh, warriors coming down at you, and then it's just over, you mm. know, it's just over. So flee. 
To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.